The records you can find, if, if you even if you don't know what you're looking for, there's something there that will cause you to think about something in a completely different direction and be able to go, aha. And the aha is what we're all looking for. You don't know what's in there until you look. And, and something that, that comes out of the page that I may look at it and say, eh, and I show it to you and it's your uncle, you say, holy crow. You know, so it, it's, 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 it's a clue. And Hi, I'm Barbara. And I'm Hope. Romance, tragedy, mysteries, all a part of your heritage. Each month, we will explore our guests' family trees and the inspirational stories of their ancestors. What led them to begin their genealogical quest? What have they learned about their heritage? We're the founding members of Lower Bucks Genealogists and have been researching our own family histories for 30 years. We are the Heritage Hunters. On today's episode, we'll be exploring military records and how to research them. We have some special guests joining us today. Stay tuned as we explore what resources are available to us and how they help our genealogy. Today we have with us Bob Shearer, retired U.S. Army Colonel, historian and council member of the 12th Armored Division, also known as the Hellcats Association, and board member of the 12th Armored Division Memorial Museum in Abilene, Texas. The 12th Armored Division Association has the mission of maintaining camaraderie of the veterans of that division, their spouses and widows, and family members. This is accomplished through the publication of a monthly 32-page newsletter known as the Hellcat News, Zoom meetings, annual reunions, and many phone calls, emails, and letters. The association still has 48 living veterans and 55 living spouses and widows, and has been publishing their newsletter and conducting annual reunions for 75 years. The mission of the 12th Armored Division Museum is to preserve the history of the division and to conduct distance learning through the country on World War II and the Holocaust. In addition to writing three monthly columns for the Hellcat News, Bob has made numerous trips to the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri, and researched the records of over 300 World War I, World War II, and Korean War vets for veterans themselves and family members of the Hellcat veterans for many of our peers who are researching their family history and for other friends and acquaintances. Thank you for your service, Bob. And we also have Ed Preston, chairman of the PA Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund. Ed spearheaded the project of bringing the Vietnam Traveling Memorial to Bucks County, PA in 2017, and just this past September, 2021, was instrumental in bringing a permanent memorial that honors those from Lower Bucks County who served in the Vietnam War to Middletown Veterans Park. The memorial sculpture was created by Abby Godwin, whose works include the Corman Memorial and the Peacekeeper Statue, at the Beirut Memorial, both at Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina, 
and the North Carolina Vietnam Veterans Memorial on the grounds of the state capitol in Raleigh. The Bucks County Memorial includes the names of the 94 killed or missing from Lower Bucks County. It is also the president of the Pendell Humeville Memorial Day Parade Committee, which has been putting on the annual Memorial Day Parade for more than 20 years. Thank you, Ed. What records can be found at the National Archives in St. Louis? Records, uh, personnel records from veterans that uh, left the service between 1912 and 1974. And when I say left the service, I mean either were discharged, either honorably or dishonorably, retired or died in service. The, the records before 1912 are held in uh, Archives 1, which is in Washington, D.C., and that would be for all of the previous wars or anybody who was in the service during between wars. And then 1974, after that, all records are digital. I'm not exactly sure um, how to access those, but you can't access a record unless the person has departed the service at least 60, 62 years ago. Anything over, older than 62 years is public record and anybody can look at it. Anything newer than 62 years, it has to be the individual or next of kin. There are three types of records at the National Personnel Records Center. First is the OMPF, the Official Military Personnel File. The, um, there's also an IDPF, Individual Deceased Personnel File. That file is um, used when an individual dies overseas and all of the information in that file is the information uh, and correspondence used to bring that person's remains back to the United States. There's also mourning reports, um, and I'm talking specifically Army, but all those files are available for all services. Mourning reports are, are strictly Army and Army Air Force or, uh, or Air Force, and that is a record that shows what happens in every company-sized unit. Company-sized unit is about somewhere between 150 and 200 people. Uh, and those, um, the morning report shows what happened on a particular day to that unit. It, it shows additions to the unit. Uh, it shows uh, people who are wounded. It shows people who are transferred out. It will show promotions and anything else. The other thing that's important about that piece of uh, that document is that it shows where the unit was on that day. There's also um, Units, uh, unit records uh, that are kept in Archives 2, which is in College Park, Maryland. Those, unit, those records are the operational uh, records of the unit, and the, the important thing about that is it tells you where the unit is and what it was doing at that time. Morning call records also 62 years? Uh, no, no. Morning reports, anybody can look at them. The only problem with morning reports, thank you for asking, is you have to physically go there. In order to obtain the records from uh, the National Personnel Records Center, you can do it in three ways. Uh, you can physically go there, you can request them, or you can hire a local researcher. Um, local researchers are very good, uh, they're not cheap, um, but right now there's no, uh, nobody can access any records because of COVID. Everything is closed. So, and if you were to send in a request for your, your dad's records, um, they would go in line, and it may be two years based on the back backlog before you see it. I've got a, a sort of a personal question about this. So neither my father nor my grandfather served. Okay. And in fact, when uh, my father was being born, my grandfather in 1944, my grandfather had written a letter to my grandmother stating that he needed to write a notice to the draft board 
notifying them of another dependent. So what sort of letter would that have been? Do you have any ideas? Well, it, it would have just been a, a normal letter, you know, business letter, correspondence letter, mm -hmm. uh, but he would have had to attach to it some kind of documentation, uh, a copy of a birth certificate, uh, a certification of a live birth or whatever. Uh, back in 1940, um, when, the, when they started the draft, uh, first they drafted uh, all young men uh, between, I think, 18 and 25 who were single. Then they went to um, a little bit older men. There's, there was, there's literally about 25 categories that you could fall into. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reason that it's important that your, your grandfather, was it, mm -hmm. wrote the letter was because once they got done drafting the single men, then they drafted the married men. Then they drafted the married men with one child. And then they drafted the men with two child, etc. So he went into a different category when he had a second child. So that's okay. why he did that. Both of my children are in the military. What sort of records would be available about their service to future genealogists? Well, generally the, the same type of information, which would include things like uh, their home record when they entered active duty, uh, their occupation as a civilian, uh, what their education level is, uh, names and addresses of their parents uh, when they were when they went into the service, uh, and then. We have a thing called, now, now it's SGLI, Servicemen's Group Life Insurance. Back in World War II, it was uh, National Service Life Insurance. Basically, it's, a, it's an insurance policy that the government gives you in case you die on active duty. And it, you know, it, it, it's payable to whoever you want it to be payable to. Normally a parent, but I've seen them uh, that would show a, a cousin, a sister, a brother. Sometimes there's a name in there that you have absolutely no, no way of recognizing. You don't know who it is. So whether it's a significant other, or there's no, uh, maybe there's no close relative. Sometimes that can be, a, a, that can be a hint for a genealogist. Um, the other things that, uh, let's see what else would be in there. Um, okay, and then the locations and the dates that they served, which is, um, is important uh, because, um, I have a, a story I'll tell you a little bit later about paternity, but it, it's, it's important to know uh, where people were at certain times. And when it's when it's important, I don't know, but sometimes it's important. One thing I didn't mention about the uh, the records in uh, uh, in St. Louis is in 1973 there was a fire, and 75 percent of Army Army Air Force and Air Force records in that window, 1912 to 1974, were either damaged or destroyed. Uh, USMC and Navy records only a very very few records were destroyed and simply because those records were in a different location and being worked on at the time. But their records are quite, quite extensive. I've, I've researched uh, Navy folks and, and Marine Corps folks that have had up to 80 pages in their file. Most Army records now have just one or two pages. Um, the, the archives has, has continued to try to reconstruct the records and there were certain documents, medical documents and financial documents that were not in the OMPF, the personnel files, when the fire occurred. So the archives has been pulling those in. They've also reached out to the VA and other organizations and try to pull in uh, other records that may have been lent out or copies in other places, and they, they've done a pretty good job. Uh, my dad's record, when I first researched it in 1996, it was blank, gone, burned up. I went back in 2011 and there were actually six documents in there, that uh, financial documents and medical documents that told me about his wounds and about uh, some places he was in the States. So that was, it, was, it was interesting to me. But they are, they are doing, a, doing a pretty good job on that. 
the Marine Corps records are, are, are very, very extensive. This one guy, uh, there was 120 pages in this record. It took me a long time to scan it, but uh, very, very detailed. And Navy and Marine Corps records actually include pictures. The Army records didn't. A, a lady from France, Marie, was looking for her, her father. Uh, she was born in, I believe, January 1945. Uh, correction, she was born in October 1945, which means she was conceived in December or January. Uh, her mother died, she never knew her father because he, he was a GI. Uh, her mother died when she was two years old, and she was raised by her grandparents. Until she was about 60 years old, she didn't know that her grandparents were not her parents. She wanted to find her father. So, uh, working with um, uh, another friend of mine, another researcher, uh, he convinced, he talked to her and convinced her to take a DNA test. She took a DNA test, and through the DNA, uh, we located a family in Boston that had three brothers that were of, of military age and we thought were all in the service. So I was able to, to check that out. I found two of their records. The third brother, it turns out, was never in the service. But the two records that we found, um, using morning reports and, and a whole bunch of different documents, we located, we, we learned that one brother was in a different part of France at the time, and we know he was there because he was in the stockade for nine months. The other brother uh, was in Dijon, France, at the time, which took us a while to actually track him down because of, he was had a mission that was, had been moving around. Uh, but he was determined uh, to be uh, Marie's father. Uh, sadly, he was killed in Korea in 1952, but we were able to, to put together a pretty extensive file of her father's career for her. So um, that's the kind of things that the that's records, cool. when you tie it, you have to tie it all with DNA and, and Absolutely. It's, ju it's just a tool. It's just a piece. It's also great if you want to learn about your, your family's history. The children's uh, grandfather or great-grandfather on their father's side, he actually had a journal that he kept of all of, his, all of his movements when he was serving in World War II, and I have that at home wow. for the kids, along with, he was a driver for one of the, I don't remember which one, but one of the generals, he was a driver, so he not only did he have this wonderful daily diary, but also a lot of photos from all around his where he served. One of the things that I did for their second great-grandfather on Tim's side, served in the Civil War, and just from reading Bates, like knowing where he served and reading through Bates, I was able to figure out where he became disabled. He lost an arm, and then after they discharged him, he re-enlisted in the Invalid Corps. Okay. So the children have all those documents as well, which is... Yeah, the, the, the archive records that I've heard of uh, from the Civil War, Revolutionary War, Mexican War in D.C. are really extensive. Mm -hmm. They are. They're much, and, and sadly, the World War II records would have been extensive too, except they burned up. But right. uh, yeah, the, the, the government does a pretty good job of keeping records. I have my, uh, my great-grandfather's on my dad's side records, two of them. And I mean, it gives you everything you can ever learn of. It's got his heart rate. It's got his blood type. It's got what uh, an oxygen level. I don't know how they measured oxygen level back then, but what, they have it. What, what, what era was this? What? Uh, Civil War. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's crazy. Uh, the, the amount of information in it was staggering to me. It was, amazing. It, was, <laughs> it was It was amazing. So, Ed, what inspired you to become involved with the veterans? 
You know, my family's always served. You know, my dad served in World War II. All my uncles served in World War II in Korea. Um, you know, there's always been somebody military in my family, I guess. Um, I know during Scouts, you know, Boy Scouts, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, camping. And back in the 70s, uh, you know, anybody that was a Scoutmaster or a Ranger at a Scout camp, 90% of the time, or probably more than that, was a veteran. And back then, they were Korea and Vietnam veterans, all of them. So, without really probably knowing it, you know, when you're 10, whatever, you're spending a lot of time with with those guys. And you learn a lot of different things that, you know, you just pass off as part of your everyday life in scouting. Um, you know, we, we camp 12 months out of year, so... You know, we're at a camp once a month for four to five days with all these guys. Do that over 20 years. There's a lot of exposure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you just you latch on to some things, I guess. And when you, uh, when you get a little bit older and you get a little more wiser and you figure it out, uh, you know, you see that there's always a need. Um, so in our town, when the parade was canceled, there was a need. Um, we had kids in our troop at that point that were certainly much younger than me that didn't really have that same exposure, but they also didn't get the exposure of our local veterans because there was no more parade. And they didn't understand anything. They didn't understand Memorial Day, Veterans Day. They, they really literally had no idea of what it was about and what the meaning of it was. So I started the parade to bring it back to, to help teach people and let them understand what the important things are. And what year was that that you brought it back? I started fundraising in 96. The first parade was in 97. That, that's a really good point because I think less than, oh, far less than 1% of, of the country has had anybody currently or recently in uniform. And, and we don't, we are, we're representative of society, but society is not necessarily a representation of us. Absolutely. And that number is coming down so fast when you look back at our generation compared to this generation. That's um, you know, the, back when we were younger, it was very acceptable and very promoted and very, very encouraged to join the military. Still a lot of our OTCs out there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's changed a little bit from what I've read and what I've learned talking to some folks. Um, that have been going through school. So now, you can take an ROTC program, mm -hmm. but not actually be in the ROTC. If you take it for more than three semesters, you have to make a decision. Right. Either you're in or you're out. But they give you three semesters to be like, oh, you know, this is pretty good. So you learn the drills and you learn the exercises and you learn those basic things. So that's kind of cool that they still do it, but there's still not enough that, that right. make that plunge. Hey Barb, guess who's celebrating their centennial? Who? The Genealogical Society of New Jersey. We love them. Celebrate with GSNJ as we mark this monumentous occasion with lunch and amazing presentation. The keynote speaker, Dr. Tom Jones, will discuss building a lineage with little or no direct evidence. Joseph Clitt, trustee of the society, will present a brief history of GSNJ. For additional information, please visit www dot gsnj.org 
So Hope, when is this happening? Saturday, November 13th, 2021 at 9.30 a.m. And where? At the St. Demetrius Community Center, 691 Roosevelt Avenue, Carteret, New Jersey, 07008. Thanks, Hope. That's great info. My ancestor, Werner Waite, his brother Martin, and his sister Grace all joined the military in World War II. Werner and Martin joined in February of 1941, with Grace following soon after in December, all heading to the Army. Martin started in the cavalry with Werner and then became an aerial gunner with the Army Air Corps. He saw much action in China and survived with one other person when his plane was shot down. Shortly after that, he was killed in a routine plane accident in the Chinese theater of war when he was just 28 years old. Grace spent her time as a lieutenant in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps and met her husband, John, a lieutenant in the U.S. Military Police Provost Corps while they were both posted in England. I found a nice story about their wartime romance in D-Day Stories from the Walls. Werner met my grandmother, Louise Snyder, and they were married in 1956. They had a good life together until she passed in 1997. He was a passionate bow and arrow hunter that he continued to enjoy well into his 90s. He enjoyed his time with his family until he passed away earlier this year at the age of 102 years old. A good place to start your research into military records is at the National Archives at www.archives.gov. Military records can often provide valuable information on the veteran as well as their family members. Service records and pension files, along with bounty land applications, go back to the Indian Wars. These records allow you to locate your ancestor and trace his movements between his military service and the time he applied for pension. If his widow applied, you can determine his death date, and in some cases, his heirs. On July 12, 1973, a fire at the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri, destroyed approximately 16 to 18 million military personnel files. The records affected were the Army, personnel discharged between November 1, 1912 to January 1, 1960, and the Air Force, personnel discharged September 25, 1947 to January 1, 1964. All white male citizens between the ages of 18 and 45 had to register for the draft. These records often include his age, residence, occupation, and marital status. If your ancestor was in the South during the Civil War, his military records may be at the War Department in Washington, D.C. If your ancestor made the military his career or died in active service, burial records may exist. These will provide his name, date and place of burial, survivors, date and cause of death, and some military information. If you can identify your ancestor's military unit, explore the many regimental or unit histories, such as Bates' history of the Pennsylvania Volunteers. If you are looking for state militia records, check the appropriate state archive.
So if you're a veteran and want to honor your veteran or your, your loved one, you can buy a brick at the Lower Bucks County Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It's simple. You can visit www.lbcvvmf.org and buy a brick. The brick will last forever. It's $150 per brick, 26 characters each, 13 on a line. Very easy. Recognize your vet. Honor them forever. in RTC. Uh, the, first, the first two years, the first four semesters were, actually, uh, two years before I joined, everybody, all men, had to be a part of it. This was at Hofstra University on Long Island, and it was because the government had funded, did a lot of funding for the college, mm -hmm. so that the kids had to be a, a, port, a part of it. But then, after, you made your decision at the end of your sophomore year, and whether you wanted to stay or not. You know, and obviously the numbers dropped drastically, but but it did get get exposure. Hmm. And that was at Hofstra. Yeah, interesting. And they still have a program there. It's not not big, but they still have it. Because well, even just doing my little blurb about my grandfather and his brother and sister in the war, and I'm like, I realized I didn't really know anything. My grandfather and his brother went in the cavalry. What war? What war? World War Two. Okay. And then my grandfather became a paratrooper and his brother had uh, been killed. And, um, and then his sister had joined a couple months later and she was in the nurse corps. So I was like, okay, I got this little tidbits and I'm like, that's it, that's all I know. <laughs> I'm like, my grandfather lived to be 102 and we never got those stories. Well, I think, I mean, that's one of the things I think is amazing when you look at the veterans and you look at the ones even in your family. Um, you'll never know anything about them. Right. They will not say a word. Yes. Uh, you know, again, all my almost my entire family served. Six uncles, actually eight uncles, my dad, all served during time of war. Mm -hmm. And I knew absolutely zero. Mm -hmm. He had a tattoo on his arm. That the only thing we knew was he got it in the Navy. What it was, couldn't tell you. Why he got it, no idea. Never spoke a word of it. It's, it's, a, it's a, something my father used to tell me. And he said, the guys that talk the most about it are the guys that probably did the absolute minimum. You know, mm. the, the guys that, that don't say much usually just did their job and some of them did a, above and beyond. But the, the guys that talk about it a lot, yeah, you know, <laughs> put so. your head down and do your job. Yeah. But and, and speaking about uh, talking to older veterans now with the 12th Armored Division Association, the average age of my good friends is 97. Uh, mm -hmm. These folks are all over the country, and you're right. The more you talk to them, these things come out. They they don't even think it's no it's it's notori notoriety. They don't even think it's important. But but you'd say, wow. And and the interesting thing about these guys is their service is interesting, but the careers that they they did afterwards, and the what exposure, the, what the GI Bill did for this country, yeah, it's just amazing. It's incredible when you uh, so you have the advantage um, that you're a veteran. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, if I were to ask those same questions, I would get zero. I've learned that over many years of dealing with the parade and and the Vietnam guys that I I've worked with and the projects I've done. Um, you know, as a veteran, you guys talk 
to each other. You do not talk to. Oh, it's a language. It is. It was a language for sure, but you don't share because there's no way I'm going to understand exactly what took place, and that's uh, that's an exposure on your level that most of those guys are just not willing to uh, to do. It's interesting you should say that because sometimes I. I I tend to have a one-track mind, and I start talking to people about. It. I can see their eyes glazing over as I start to get excited about what I'm talking about. But you know, yeah, no. <laughs> well, I think a really good initiative to, would be to interview veterans. You know, if if I knew the right things to ask and the right way to ask them, I would love to start an initiative. I like get that. you a list of questions. We, the, the I can get you a list of veterans. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, the, the museum has in, interviewed uh, over 300. Uh, people, we usually do it at, at, at the at the reunions, and uh, right. uh, so it's uh, they redid their website. So there's like only 120 that are out there now. But just Google 12th Armored Division Museum, and it's a, it's a lot of information. The World War II Museum is doing the same thing. They're interviewing yeah. as many guys as they can, not only recording but video, mm -hmm. um, and right. and that they have that, and they've got quite. A, I'm not sure what the numbers, but I know they have quite a few. There's also a book called The Rifle. Ah, yes. Yes, I Did you? A friend of mine's good friend is the guy that was writing it. Um, and it's a really great book. He, they took this M1 Garand rifle that from World War II, and he took it to all these v all World War II veterans that he could find, interviewed them, talked to them about their service, and then they signed the gun. Wow. So this wow. rifle has, I think it's like almost a thousand signatures on it. It's wow. it's very very cool, very very cool. As far as far as the recording part, we did that when we did the wall. Um, we were, I mean, again, Vietnam veterans I think are different than most veterans. They are very very closed. Yes. Um, they are, they are their own group, and they just do not um, walk outside their circle. Well, that's the way they were treated. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I was able to convince twelve of them to sit with us. And do a small round table. Nice. Um, it didn't last long. It was only about maybe 30 minutes because that was all that they were willing to do. I'm not sure what happened to the recording because I didn't have this kind of technology. I couldn't do it for sure. Um, but, we, you know, it was really interesting to, to hear um, them amongst themselves because, you know, for me, again, being non-veteran, you got to step back a little bit and let them, you know, tell their story. Um and it's very interesting to hear um, when they're open to just let some things come out. It's amazing. It really is. So tell us a little bit about uh, when you brought the wall to Bucks County. Yeah. So uh, in 2003, uh, the Department of Defense did a uh, commemorative 50th anniversary of the Korean War. Um, believe it or not, our committee was still learning and growing even though it was 13 years later um, and we we didn't have the ability or the capability to honor them in any fashion except to have a parade and after that year I said you know if they did it now they're gonna do it for Vietnam so I just you know bide my time and at that point you know World War one or two guys were you know falling off we didn't have as many of them in the parade we still had a bunch of Korean guys um, that would come to the parade and you know go still Vietnam guys there, there was only one that ever came to the parade ever one and um, you know when we end the parade every year we were on John Delola Avenue 
So I just kept looking at that name going, you know, here we are, but not one person ever mentions his name on Memorial Day. How's that possible? The street's named after him, and nobody even says his name. So I, so I just started looking and looking, looking, researching and, and learning more about it. And I, and I said at that point, when it happens, the 50th anniversary, I'll do something. Mm -hmm. So I found that there were three traveling walls. I picked the largest one because that's how I roll. <laughs> and uh, I just started uh, on my own. So that was 2017. So that was in uh, 2009. I started my plan to bring it here. In 2015, I started telling people what I wanted to do. And the first three guys that I asked to help me both were like, are you crazy? I'm like, well, yeah, I guess I am, but yeah. And uh, it just, you know, went from there. And, you know, I built a great committee um, to do it. Um, as we were doing it, though, the research um, component of it became really, really important. 136 men from Bucks, 134 were killed, four still missing in action. At that time, in 2015, um, there were only... 43 pictures uh, on the D, on the walls site in D.C., Wall of Faces. Bucks County, we had like 43 or 46, I don't remember. So one thing we talk about when we talk about the research, research partners, they're important. Everybody has a different perspective. I have a good partner, Greg Woodrow, and uh, he and I started looking and, you know, researching all these 136 guys. At the end of that period, we knew everything about those 136 men, but more importantly, we had 130 pictures. We produced a book for that, for that weekend when we had the wall here, which brought 25,000 people to come and visit it. And as we researched it and did more looking in and, and people could understand more about what I was trying to do, um, they realized that this wasn't like you know, uh, a fireworks show or uh, an air show. This was a true tribute to every Vietnam vet, everyone. And uh, when we did the book, the book was like, I think it was uh, 24 pages thick. And in it was every, every man, every 136, with their picture. Because mm -hmm. I told everybody, I said, I want everybody to look at that name and see a face and uh, it, that's how it just evolved eventually actually the next year 2018 Memorial it was actually Memorial Day weekend um, 2018 two weeks before that I had found the last man so I found Reeves um, scouring websites local websites for companies and battalions to try and just narrow that cone, and I found a guy that was in his flight crew. Then I ended up finding the entire flight crew until I got down to the last man, his name is Ron Turner, who I still speak with today, um, who told me the whole story. Gave me the entire story of 3 March 1968. How did the military records enhance one's genealogy? For me, um, 
the the records that you can get from St. Louis. Um, I didn't know anything about my dad. I knew he served. I knew he was in the Navy. But he wasn't actually in the Navy. He was actually in the Navy Reserve back then. Who would have thought? No one was a thing. Um, but after being getting in contact with them, sending my request in, I got 97 pages yeah. worth of records. The only thing that we ever knew about him for sure, and the only thing he ever said was um, that he was seasick once. <laughs> so we were like, wow, that seems crazy for a sailor. But um, what we learned was he was on a sub chaser. Well, we knew he was on a sub chaser, which was a boat that just chased submarines in the Caribbean. But the boat was only 100 foot long and only 18 feet wide. What 30 knots, which is pretty fast for a boat that size, but the thing got thrown all over the place. Yeah. And apparently seasick was really common down there. Um, and he was actually in the hospital for seven days twice for seasickness. Wow. And then when you get to look at that, you can say, okay, in the hospital records, you get more information. You know, uh, where the diabetes may have come from, you know, you can you can figure some of those things out, and and now you, for me, I had my great grandparents, but I didn't have one of my great great uncles. He was listed in there for some reason. I don't know. I don't remember why, but he was in there, um, which enabled me to just get to the other side and find another seven or eight people that were not available to me before. But uh, it, it, the records you can find, if, if you even if you don't know what you're looking for, there's something there that will cause you to think about something in a completely different direction and be able to go, aha. And the aha is what we're all looking for. Absolutely. You know? The bright and shiny <clears throat> objects. Yes, those little bright and shiny objects. You don't know what's in there until you look. And, and something that that comes out of the page that I may look at it and say, eh, and I show it to you, and it's your uncle, you say, holy crow, you know? So it, it's, it, it's, it's a clue, and, and, it's, uh, and it's fun. And you did one other thing that we haven't mentioned, and that was you were pretty instrumental in renaming the street down the road. The Vietnam veteran is, as I, I think, is completely different than everybody else. It's the only war in our history where a, a, a soldier, airman, marine, sailor went by themselves. So I started an initiative. Um, it started here uh, in Unionville with the naming of uh, Sergeant James E. Boardman Avenue. Uh, it's the only street in Unionville actually that never had a street sign. It was actually another name. It was called Crawl Street was the name of it. But it was never had a sign. Everybody always thought it was Beaver Avenue but it wasn't. Nobody lives on it. Nothing. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start here. So I was on Human Borough Council at that point, again, and I'm like, before I leave this council this year, this is what we're going to do. And I told him, I said, it's simple. It's going to cost nobody anything, and all it's going to do is make this guy be remembered for the rest of eternity. Um, so when we got it passed and we, we were able to do it, we, we were able to name the street you know, after him. He lived on Washington Avenue. His family still lives there. Um, so it's really important to do that. Since then, we've actually, um, we're in the process of naming six bridges right now after 
some of the guys, um, the 136. Um, I was asked not that long ago by one of our local politicians, how many of these things are you going to do? And I said 136. Briefly, Memorial Day is uh, a day to remember uh, people who either died or were killed in, in the service. Uh, usually you think about people who are killed in action, but any, a person who died while wearing the uniform is memorialized. And Veterans Day is, uh, is to honor all veterans, anyone who served, not just people who served in wartime, not just people who, who, who served overseas, but anybody who ever put the uniform on. And the, the difference is that on Memorial Day, you put the flag at half-staff until noon, and then you raise it up. Uh, to honor everybody. In Veterans Day, the flag stays up. You don't lower the flag at all on Veterans Day. It's very important, and especially to, um, uh, to a lot of our, our World War II veterans. Uh, they, they take it really, really seriously. And this Veterans Day, you know, it was the 100th anniversary institution of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The big draw um, is for the first time in 100 years, anybody uh, yeah, yeah. will be able to go and lay a wreath or a flower Red Poppies comes from uh, the poem Flanders Fields by, uh, I think it was John McRae, a Canadian major who was a, a, a surgeon in World War I. The, the poppy is worn um, as a, uh, in memory of those that were killed. Well, I want to thank you both for your time and for answering our questions today. Knowing that my father and grandfather hadn't served in the military, I didn't give military records much thought. But as I was working on the genealogy for my children, I took a closer look. I've always had an interest in the Civil War and decided to try my luck there. I checked Bates' history of the Pennsylvania Volunteers, but did not find any names of my ancestors. Next, I tried the Soldiers and Sailors database. I saw the name of my ancestor, George Rentschler, but it stated that he had joined a regiment in Missouri, not Pennsylvania. George Rentschler was born in 1839 in Legelshurst, Germany, and immigrated to the U.S. in 1854. Through further investigation, I learned that he joined the 17th Regiment of the Missouri Volunteers, Company B, on September 12, 1861. This regiment was known as the Western Turner Rifles. George was part of the Philadelphia Turners, a German-American athletic and social organization. The 17th Missouri Volunteer Infantry recruited German-Americans through the Turner Society chapters around the country. One whole company came from Philadelphia. The 17th Missouri was engaged from the earliest days of the Civil War, marching from St. Louis to Georgia. From May 27th to July 14, 1862, the 17th marched to Helena, Arkansas. It was there that George suffered from typhoid fever and then what the army called a nervous fever and subsequently developed dropsy. He suffered from severe abdominal pains in an army hospital near Helena for two months. On the muster roll for September 15, 1862, it is written that discharged due to disability, July 29, 1862, Helena, Arkansas, by order of Brigadier General John Wynne Davidson. The regiment lost a total of 219 men during service, six officers and 62 enlisted men killed or mortally wounded, and three officers and 148 enlisted men died from disease. George arrived back in Philadelphia in 1862. He married Catherine Ferber on May 21, 1865. When he died in August of 1885, his wife Catherine filed for his pension. 
She was originally denied because George had been mistakenly listed as a deserter in November at Fort Clark. Catherine was somehow able to correct this, collect her pension, and have George retroactively honorably discharged in Washington, D.C. in 1885. George's military files were found on Fold3.com. Fold3 provides convenient access to military records, including the stories, photos, and personal documents of the men and women who served. several years, the Washington Crossing Wreaths for Veterans Committee has set out to recognize every veteran laid to rest in Washington Crossing National Cemetery. This year, on December 18th, wreaths will be available and the cemetery will be open. The goal for this year is to lay a wreath at all 19,000 headstones. Please visit www.wcwreaths.org to make a donation. Thank you for your support to remember and honor our fallen heroes and your loved ones at Washington Crossing National Cemetery. There will be a ceremony this year on December 18th at 1130 a.m. We hope to see you there. some quick facts about military records. The National Archives and Records Administration has service records from 1775 to 1917. And National Personnel Records Center has records from 1912 to the present. Records that are useful for genealogists include service and discharge records, compiled military service records, pension records and or veterans claims, draft registration cards, Bounty Land Records. And some other places to find some records are military lineage societies such as the Daughters or Sons of the American Revolution. Thank you for joining Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production hosted by Barbara May and Hope Callenbeck. The show is mixed and produced by Barbara. Special thanks to our guests, Bob Shearer and Ed Preston, for joining us today and lending their expertise. We hope you've been enjoying Heritage Hunters and would love to hear your thoughts on the show. Head on over to heritage-hunters.com and leave us a review. Your feedback helps us create the best show we can. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. We'll see you the next time on Heritage Hunters.